If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Dr. Caroline Leaf, and welcome to another episode of Cleaning Up the Mental Mess, a podcast where I share practical and simple strategies to help you clean up your mental mess so you can help others and live your happiest and healthiest life. In this episode, I interview therapist Amanda White on how to deal with codependency, shame, guilt, loneliness, addiction, eating disorders, and so much more. Amanda is a licensed professional counselor and the owner of Therapy for Women. If you enjoy my podcast and want to know how you can help me continue making them possible, please consider subscribing wherever you listen and leaving a five-star review. And please continue sharing this podcast with friends and family and keep sharing about it on social media. I love seeing what you guys found helpful. One last thing before we begin. If you would like to receive text messages from me with mental health tips, exclusive content, insider access to sales and events and more, just text Dr. Leaf to 833-285-3747. The details will also be in the show notes. And now on to today's episode. Amanda, so nice to talk to you again. Thank you so much for agreeing to do another podcast on all the great work that you do. Yes. Thank you so much, Dr. Leaf. I'm excited to be here. That's wonderful. That's fantastic. So for those of you, my listeners that haven't heard about you, can you just tell us a little bit about who you are, a little bit of that's not in your bio. Tell us, you know, the little tidbits that that you don't share in your bio. You know, what motivates you? Why do you do what you do? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm a therapist and I'm based in Philadelphia and I have a private practice that's called Therapy for Women. So based in my bio, I kind of say I'm a retired party girl, which essentially- I love that. (laughs) Thank you. And I'm also in recovery from an eating disorder. And really why I do what I do is I specialize in both those things because I- struggled with both of those things. And I really think it's important to talk about the overlap between addiction and eating disorders, especially in women. Mm -hmm. They're so prevalent. So what motivates me is really like I created a private practice and I'm a therapist that I wanted when I was struggling Mm -hmm. and I'm motivated by breaking down mental health stigma. Yeah. I think everyone can benefit from therapy. We talk the same language. So I love it. I love the fact that you said you built a practice with therapists that you wished you'd had. That's so cool. And also you focus a lot on women and you focus a lot on eating disorders and you recovering yourself from an eating disorder. So tell us a little bit about that. 
Yeah, absolutely. So my eating disorder and my addiction were very intertwined. And I was a competitive figure skater actually growing Mm up. So there was a lot of pressure to be a certain body type Mm -hmm. and to look a certain way. And, you know, I feel like I also, you know, when you grew up in in the 90s, everything was fat free. That was Mm -hmm. that was the thing. That was the era. (laughs) So I feel like that all just kind of fed into it. And I really struggled. I moved a lot also growing up. And when I, I've, I've lived in like, I moved to like five different States when I was growing up. And while it was good that I had skating kind of as like the consistent piece, Mm -hmm. I really struggled with making friends. I struggled with fitting in. I didn't feel good enough. And that kind of manifested in the eating disorder. And then when I drank alcohol for the first time, it really felt for me like friends in a bottle. Like Mm -hmm. I lost a lot of the insecurity. I lost some of the self-consciousness. I was able to be more outgoing. Mm -hmm. And then those two things just, you know, continued to feed off of each other. Like they often do. Yeah. Yeah. And I just kept struggling. You know, I would get, I would get some time in my eating disorder and then I would start drinking again and they Mm -hmm. would kind of go back and forth. Yeah. Until I finally was like, all right, both of these things need to, I need to stop both of these things to really be where I want to be. And I was lucky that I had a therapist who shared her story with me and was honest. And, you know, I promised myself that if I got into recovery, I would spend my life helping others do the same. Oh, I love that. That is amazing. That's such a great story. And I love how you have just linked you know, your experience back into how you're helping others. You said something very interesting there as well. You said that you had had enough of the the, the swapping, that's kind of moving between the eating issues and the alcohol. And, and it, so you've reached a point where you made a choice. So that under that underlines the incorrect emphasis that addiction is a disease and you don't have control, which is the current narrative. Your story, plus so many stories, so many people that are interview really go against the current view that addiction is a disease. So you would have, were probably told when you initially suffered from this or battled with this, I should say, that you had a disease, but you don't, you know, and, and that's it. You've got to live with this the rest of your life. You know, like kind of like Alcoholics Anonymous, I am an alcoholic. So that getting stuck in that, that you can't get out. But you said yourself, it was when you chose that you can't go on like this anymore. And then you got to someone who actually a therapist who was authentic. I picked that up, what you said there. They told their story, so you felt safe. And then you started realizing and finding why you were doing what you were doing, but you chose and you did the work. I really believe in, you know, the new theory that's coming out about how it is much more of a learned behavior and there's a lot more of a learning component to it. And that's what I connect to most. And I see it most Mm. with my clients. It's just that like, it's, it's, it becomes a maladaptive coping skill. And I like that theory a lot more too, because I believe anyone given trauma, given difficulties, given the right circumstances can abuse alcohol, drugs, end up with an eating disorder regardless. Mm. And I kind of envision it like we're all on this point from like not having an issue to having a real issue. Yeah, yeah. And I could, one thing that really gave me power was I was like, I can see where this is going. I can see that if I continue to drink the way I'm going to, it's only going to get worse. Mm, That's amazing. And I think if we, I think it's actually a lot more empowering to, to talk to people about it and the way that, you know, 
to talk about rather than you have a disease or you don't, because that creates a lot of stigma. And yes, then everyone and helplessness. Help. They don't have a disease. <laughs> yeah, and then also a sense of helplessness because you stress the empowerment and you felt empowered. You could see where it was going, so you felt empowered. That awareness gave you that empowerment. And it's so interesting that you said those words because my most recent clinical trial that I did, one of the things we looked at the whole mind-brain connection, looked at the psychology, the neurophysiology, the physiology, and it was like a pathway to empowerment. It was so clear when people and we had people that were battling with addictions like battling with eating issues and alcohol and that kind of stuff and it was when people became aware like you said you became aware you could see the pathway that you felt empowered we saw exactly that order people were aware they felt autonomy okay well if that's the case that means if I can see it I can control it and then they started that gave them the courage to look at the toxic patterns and the toxic stress telling them the toxic patterns so the signals to the thoughts to why you got there to then shifting that and managing the barriers and challenges and you know that's what you did and I and I love that the, the learning component too I want to stress that that we do learn so it, it, as we know you the addiction that you went through was to deal with something that hadn't been dealt with it was trying to put a band-aid on the wound or whatever and you and you did it so often that you practice I mean and some of the work I've done is looking at how thoughts form over time what's the time frame and thoughts contain memories like a tree so I always use a little tree analogy so there's the thought and then the thought all the branches of the memories and you're so right about time we can get a toxic habit so I've got my little toxic tree over here and we learn it we have an issue we develop a coping strategy then we literally practice it by the time that you've gone through almost 63 days which is about nine weeks it becomes a habit so it takes about nine weeks give or take a few days to form a habit so you think of it yourself that's that's nine weeks in your life if you've been battling with something alcohol for three months or six months you've hit the point where you've turned that into a pattern and the more you think about it the bigger it grows it's dominating you so you're so right that it's a learned behavior so you have to identify the behavior and work backwards so I just wanted to stress the science behind that it's so 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 true and the time frame as well because it's going to take that amount of time and I'm sure you you know it's not it's not an overnight issue how long did you work on it before you found major breakthrough was it like a sort of three four six months what is what is the time frame yeah so my eating disorder took longer a bit because it was kind of my primary issue that I had to work through first so I would say I mean it's funny because I was in and out of therapy since I was like 16 but I wasn't Mm -hmm. being honest and I wasn't Mm -hmm. really ready I think to change at that point and I wasn't it was really difficult in college to imagine, you know, not drinking or working through things. Mm. So it took about a year in therapy before I started making real, real breakthroughs. And I think it's, it's interesting being on the other side of it as a clinician. I'm so grateful I had that experience because I think a lot of people, you know, we can get frustrated if we don't see change quickly and we don't realize how much seeds may be planted Mm. And then they kind of come together one day. Yeah, just suddenly one day they come together. That's so. I'm so glad you said that because you said another key. You're saying so many key, brilliant pearls of wisdom. You said that you were you weren't ready to change until a point, and that's the big thing. And you and people can get frustrated because they think you're ready to change, but you've got to be ready to change. And then you said as well about. You may have a whole year where you don't see change, but all these little pearls of wisdom are being all these seeds are being sown, and then it all comes together. Yeah. And you're trying different things and you're failing and you're trying something else and you're failing. I'm a huge, or, you know, maybe not even failing, but it's not working. And I'm a huge believer in, we need to try different actions and it's not about getting it right or wrong, but we're all different and we're all going to have a different way of working through issues. And the only way to really figure out what works for us is to try it out. And if it doesn't work, then we, we try something else. 
that's not a bad thing. It's a great thing because each is a learning experience. I love that. That's amazing. Fantastic. Let's pivot to codependency because you work with quite a lot of clients with codependency. Can you define it and just what is it? How does it work? What do you do? How do you fix it? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So I work with codependency in a lot of cases because, I mean, originally, right, codependency originally kind of came about as a topic that was very much created in line with women who were married to people, married to men, especially that were alcoholics. And I've worked in it in the capacity of addiction as well. As I've, you know, continued to grow in my practice and my skills, I see codependency in lots of different relationships. It can show up in romantic relationships and friendships, but essentially codependency happens when we are trying to feel enough by using someone outside of ourselves. Mm -hmm. And I think if we have a addiction and eating disorder, anxiety, depression, something else that's going on that makes us feel unlovable or unworthy, it's a, a natural component to want to, you know, validate ourselves, find something outside of ourselves to make us feel okay. And it can become addictive while we, of course, need people. It's really important that, you know, human beings have needs. We can also get, you know, so we're never going to just be completely independent. I think flop the opposite way with that, you know, intense independence. It becomes codependency when we get our sense of worth, when we get our sense of self from someone else. Mm, Okay. And you say it happens, you see it a lot with people with when one of the partners has got a drinking problem. So is it the partner, so it's it's the other partner, the one who's not drinking gets the codependency. So they, for their own validation, because they're being validated when the person is not, is. Yeah. Or they especially want to fix and control and make that person well. Uh-huh. Understandable okay. for sure, but it's just mm-hmm. they can't fix that person, that they can't make them better. And I often actually, I think two days ago, I did a, a post on Instagram that was kind of these two puzzle pieces about codependency. Mm-hmm. I can, yes, I see that here. Yeah. Yeah. Why like, well, it's hard for one person yeah, in the thing. relationship to change. Because a lot of times we end up in these, especially romantic relationships, where someone has something that we don't have and we're attracted to that. But then when we start growing, when we start, you know, especially the person who say is the like, quote unquote, identified patient or who Mm. has the problem with alcohol or an eating disorder, Mm -hmm. as they grow, because they drop those habits and they start to stick up for themselves, set boundaries. Mm-hmm. The other one in the relationship, you've changed the status quo and you've changed mm. the dynamic. And there's often a pushback of they wanted the person to get better. But now that the person's getting better, they feel lost, confused, not sure where their role is. And the dynamic can be hard if both people aren't willing to grow together. Mm, that makes so much sense. So the codependency comes in the, what's, how, how would the codependency look in that situation? Yeah. So the codependency would look like, right. If the person who is struggling with alcohol stops drinking, they recognize maybe that they haven't been, you know, spending, they don't have maybe friends. They don't have a support system. They're lonely. That's a, like, that's a part of their drinking. So now they start going to meetings. They start, they're in therapy. They meet friends. They're starting to be assertive. They have less time for their partner, which the partner originally wanted, but now the partner starts to feel like this isn't who I was with. This person is changing. 
now that this person's getting better, the partner doesn't have as many things to worry about. Maybe they don't feel like they can control and help as much. Mm. And then that partner is kind of put in a situation where they realize that hopefully that they need to grow to make the relationship work because the dynamic has changed. So it's codependency. Both depend on each other for the almost the wrong reasons. And when one doesn't change, that can really cause a shift. So when you work with that kind of relational thing, you've got to try and help them both to recognize the ones changing, the ones not. And the one who's not changing is going to have to do some changing. Yeah. Kind yeah, of things. Especially it can happen too with, I work with a lot of young women who it's like happens with their parents, like especially their parents dying for them to get better, dying for them to, to grow and change and, you know, grow up. And then the, they start realizing, you know, the, the client starts realizing that their parents are maybe codependent on them and are controlling and the client starts setting boundaries and starts being more independent. Mm -hmm. And now the parents are like not used to the dynamic change. They're not used to having boundaries set. Ah, that's so interesting. Okay. So that then shifts the way that the, the parent suddenly sees the independence of the child healing as a threat to them because now that the, the change has shifted. So that's a matter of communication, isn't it? It's a matter of saying, look, I'm actually doing these things now. I'm changing. I've grown here. So you don't need to do those things that you needed to do in the past. So it's the communication that needs to happen. What about in the abusive situation where someone's being abused? Because that's something that I saw was how, and we all know this, the pattern of people very often staying in an abusive abusive relationship because they feel they can fix the abuser. Yes, that's absolutely codependency. Yeah. And I think it's really hard in that case too, because similar and, and it, like sometimes, you know, addictive relationships, someone with an addiction become, can become abusive too. And a lot of times it can be passed down in family. A lot of times yeah. I see trauma being passed down. Epigenetics. Of, yeah. That's a fact. Yeah. It can pass through generations that, that trauma. Yeah. And it's like that person feels like their identity revolves around trying to fix, trying to make this person okay, trying to make them better. And we can get stuck in the trauma cycle too of kind of like with domestic violence, it's the, you know, if you've ever seen the the wheel, the domestic violence wheel, where it's, there's like stages where yeah. there's the honeymoon, then there's, you know, the tension buildup, the outburst, mm -hmm. the, you know, and so we can get very yeah. addicted and codependent. To that cycle. Mm -hmm. Yeah, to the cycle, to the honeymoon of it and wanting to go back, you know, we can get addicted to the, the highs and the lows mm. of a relationship if we're not stable, supported, and healthy. That's so, so important what you've just said, because we, people often talk about the brain and I think it's completely incorrect. I speak the opposite, that we have brain has a negativity bias, but the brain can't do anything. The brain's just an organ. It just responds. So it's us, it's our mind that moves through the brain. This thing that we, that we automatically draw into the negative, I don't agree with that. And the cycle that you just described, it totally confirms, I think what I'm trying to say, which is that we actually are addicted to love. We addicted to, and, we, and scientifically, we see neuroscientifically, <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> exactly. 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 Like, so addicted means consumed by. So I always say addiction is a good word. It means we're designed to be, or we we are consumed by love. And Nobel Prize winning scientists have said we literally are wired for love. Like our circuits, we don't have circuits for abuse and toxicity of any nature, but we experience life. So we experience toxicity. It's so abnormal that we pay attention to it. Because people will often ask me things, and I'm sure they ask you, there's 50 great comments to a post, but too negative, and you ignore all the 48 
great ones and you focus on the two that were really maybe harsh. And then people have said that, oh, it's the negativity bias, but it's not. It's a positivity bias. That's the abnormal. It stands out. And if you think of the honeymoon effect in that, in that cycle, the abuse cycle, that's the normal. So you're always trying to restore normal, but you can't restore normal in someone else. You can only restore normal in yourself. So, and I think that's where the, the relational codependency thing can go wrong because you're always trying to think, okay, that's the ideal. That's what I know is right. So you think I'll go through this to get to that, but it has to be a two-way street. I don't know. It's just my take on the neuroscience side. So That makes so much sense. Because I think too, I talk a lot about self-sabotage and yes. self-sabotage. And I also think a lot of people think self-sabotage means that we like, even with self-harm and stuff that we can get into the pain. And I see it more as it's like an addiction to control because a lot of times Mm, it feels good for us to control our life. Like if life is really bad for us and we've Mm. experienced some really negative things, it feels better for us to be knocking ourselves down than be Mm. caught up hard by life not working out. That's so, so good. That's brilliant. This episode was made possible by my favorite infrared sauna company, Sunlighten Saunas. Breaking a sweat when it's already hot out might sound like the last thing you want to do, but the benefits are huge. From stimulating metabolism to increasing core body temperature to release toxins, there's always a reason to sweat. Plus, I found a quick 30-minute infrared sauna in the morning wakes my mind up and brain up and helps me get ready for a full workday. I love to fit in a quick morning sauna before doing podcast interviews as the infrared and sweating helps energize me and I use the time to prep for meetings, interviews and do research. Interested in getting your own sunlight and sauna? Right now they have a special offer just for my listeners. Get $200 off any cabin unit and $99 shipping when you visit sunlighten.com forward slash Dr. Caroline Leaf and mention my name at checkout. The link and offer details will be in the show notes. I remember someone with really bad, really battling with eating disorders saying that the only thing I can control in my environment is what I eat. You know, everything else is so out of control. And, you know, so that's that's such a valid point. You mentioned shame and guilt, and you talk a lot about that too. You've got some great posts where you should talk about the shame and the guilt. Can you talk a little, little bit about what they are, why they're different? I mean, everyone knows shame and guilt, but what's the difference between them and some maybe some tips or guidelines or something? Absolutely. Yeah. So I talk so much about shame and guilt because I really see it as the under, I mean, the undercurrent of addiction, eating disorders. Almost everyone that I know deals with shame and guilt on some level. Yeah. I agree with you. Mm -hmm. So the difference between shame and guilt, essentially the easiest way to describe it is guilt is a response to an action. So guilt is like, I feel like I made a mistake it can be a really useful emotion for us because if we feel like we did something that's out of character for us, that is out of alignment with our values, we feel guilty and we feel propelled to take action. Absolutely. There can be unhelpful guilt where you feel guilty for something that you didn't do. Maybe you may just like feel guilty in general and that isn't helpful. No. But if it's guilt over an action, a mistake you made, it can be helpful. Shame. I agree. Yeah. Shame, on the other hand, is 
I am a mistake rather than I made a mistake. It's focusing on our character, on who we are and our worth, like our worth as a human being. And it's a really unhelpful emotion because it really robs us of the ability to change. So if you make a mistake and you feel shame and you feel like, well, I'm a bad person, there isn't much motivation or hope to be able to feel like you can change because this is just mm. who you are. It's also a very interesting emotion because it's, it's mm. very linked to trauma in that we kind of often, when we're in a shame response, shut down, have trouble, you know, having like our prefrontal cortex online, we kind of go into a shame response mm. And it's hard to really think clearly. So I think it's really important to know the difference because many people tell me I feel guilty. And then when we look at it more, it's actually shame. Ooh. Yeah, because they're saying, and I think what's key there is how you explained it between shame and guilt is the one is I am and the one is I feel or I'm doing. You know, so that's linked to the behavior. So it's the I am is so vital to see. So it's, you look at your language. What? How are you describing yourself? I am x versus i've done x and that would be quite a good sort of self-evaluation of whether you're feeling shame or guilt okay do you believe that or think from your experience and therapy uh, helping people that you can take the shame once you're aware of it and, and literally convert that into a positive emotion or use that energy to something positive is it possible do you see that how does it work what does it mean Completely, completely. Of course, it depends on every person, but generally, I think being able to recognize the difference is really important. I also think being able to recognize how shame and guilt feels in your body is really important. So good. People aren't often super aware of how they feel. I don't think it's possible to ever not feel shame. Mm -hmm. Our culture in general is unfortunately brings up shame and it's yeah. like, Kind of live in a, in a culture of shame, unfortunately. It is terrible. Mm -hmm. I think it's going to come up. It also doesn't mean, right, you can feel shame without being shamed. Mm. So like if on Instagram, if someone writes a negative comment and says like, I don't agree with this because of this, this, and this, I may feel shame rather than guilt, which would be like, oh my God, I'm not a good person. I'm not a good therapist rather than I made a mistake. I should have thought about this. I'll change this in the future. Such a different reaction. The one, even your, even your facial expression change when you describe that. The one is like almost devastating to your, like it's like a knife in your gut. Yeah. Whereas the other one was, oh, I can actually do something about this. Your total face totally changed when you said that. That was fascinating. And even though you were describing it, it was like that total, total and how you feel that in your body. Yeah. That's amazing. So, right. Like we, but be like shaming someone and Brene Brown does so much work on this and did a whole podcast on this, right? Like shaming someone means like you're saying to them, like you're a bad person, you're a therapist or you're a bad therapist. You're, you know, a piece of crap. It's like name calling yeah. versus mm. pointing out something that doesn't work. That's problematic that you disagree with. That can be like accountability. Mm, that's amazing. Such a difference. So can't, shame is name calling versus accountability. So that's, that's someone doing it to you. So you've got to be able to recognize that difference. So if someone is name calling, it's to protect yourself that that's not immediately in your own mind shift that to that's what I'm doing. It's not who I am. 
but it's hard when it's a loved one but if or someone that's meaningful in your life but if you have these this, this awareness i mean this awareness brings so much autonomy because now okay if someone says you are name calling instead of going into the shame cycle of oh i'm bad because of whatever you can actually say well that's their perception of a behavior is it a valid comment is it a valid piece of advice or is it something I should pay attention to and in that way you take it out of yourself and analyze it as something that you do and then you've then you've turned shame caught the shame and turned it into something constructive you've always got to catch that shame exactly and I think that's where if you can feel it in your body if you can have that awareness to notice your thoughts you have the the time the space to then be able to catch it that's what the and I, exactly you have the time and the space to catch it when you notice your body in your body and you notice the thought and it's so interesting that you said it in that order because if you look at the science of thoughts thoughts look like trees and the mem and the thought is one concept it's the whole tree but the memories are the branches inside and there's information and the leaf the branches are the information the leaves are the emotions but you also have a representation of that thought that structure in your brain protein structures it's an actual physical change but you also get that sends a message to all the DNA and you have an imprint in your DNA so that's in your body and what often happens as we go through something we first feel the body reaction and you said that then we feel the emotion then we get the information and it's to get all three and then grab that and actually then constructively move in a direction that can make change which is what you were describing so it's very real this is actually physical stuff this is stuff that's physically in you that's come there from your being put there from a mind work in response to whatever. So you can work it, whatever came in, you can work it back out. If you've wired it in, you can wire it out, which is what you're saying. So that's, oh, this, this, so there's so much help. I mean, hope, hope. When you and get the self-awareness. so important about guilt versus shame is if you can recognize that you made a mistake or that even if you've made hundreds of mistakes, even if like your life has been that of, like your values haven't been what you've wanted them to be, you can change, you can start taking different action. And that's what's so important about when you're in shame, there's no hope. Yes, it's so hopeless and it's so devastating. And and, and when people are in shame, like we had some of people in our recent clinical trials that one of the, in their narrative, it was a lot, there was so much shame. And you could actually see, like the, for example, the homocysteine levels, which shows inflammation in the body, low-grade inflammation across the body was so high. You know, and once that was got under control, the homocysteine dropped, which is very interesting. I mean, there were other things too, but it was just interesting that shame led to so much inflammation. That there was that correlation there that your body responded by almost rejecting your immune system was saying, hey, this is so wrong, you know? So it's interesting that the that you get that that correlation. It's fascinating. So how can someone work through shame? We kind of said it, that's the awareness. Would that be, the what's the process? Yeah, so I think the process, after you recognize, you know the difference. I think you recognize how it feels in your body. A lot of times I recommend not... So often we want to get out of that experience in our body when shame starts to rise. And that's where we may attack. We may defend ourselves. We may hide. We may do whatever, you know, fight, flight, freeze. We're reacting to something. So that's where I recommend slowing down, getting in touch with the emotion and what the shame feels like. And then when you're able to process through it, then you can start to notice what those thoughts are that you're having, whether that's actually true about what's going on, right? Like whether you actually are a bad person or not, what your values are, and then choosing to take a different action that aligns with what you want and what your values are. 
Mm, that's so good. Repeat the process many, many times. Yes, over and over, and for at least nine weeks, so that you can re- that you can rewire that and get that new pattern in. Because we practice the toxic patterns, and they become automatized, habituated, and that takes about nine weeks, and not not twenty one days like we used. You know, it was often said as a myth. So, and we don't even sometimes realize we're doing these things for so long that we've done them for years. So they patterns, and then they feel like that that's who we are, but it's not who we are. It's who we've become. So yeah, that- I don't think shame also is very much like learned too, right? Not just through our society, but if we think about like parents, parents often shame their kids. You know, if you catch your child lying, a lot of times they'll say like, you're being a liar. Like that's shame. That's calling someone a name. Instead of saying, why are they lying? Instead of thinking, why is my child lying? You know, why in this household? Like, you know, like. There's a reason. There must be a reason. If a child is lying, there's a reason. If a child's got an eating issue, there's a reason. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Or even the way their p- parents talk to themselves, kids notice that. If they mm-hmm. say like, God, I'm an idiot or I messed this up, you know, and I'm stupid or whatever, we hear other people shame themselves and we perpetuate the pattern perpetuate the pattern and that epigenetic pattern that goes through as well so it's wow so that's it's there's just so much to be aware of and that's where therapy is so great because you learn this kind of skill in a in a neutral environment where it's non-judgmental because sometimes someone in your own environment a loved one can tell you that but it doesn't just doesn't make it does just doesn't go in it just doesn't because of whatever the context that may be blocking the hearing the the, the lesson but in therapy you can actually be in a safe neutral place where you can do that where you can start learning these things it's education isn't it? it's the most basic stuff that when you tell someone it makes such logical sense but when you're in the situation you know consciously what you're supposed to be doing but you know these there's those these toxic patterns that override the logic literally so they've got to be that literally is what happened isn't it the toxic patterns if you think of it override the logic of the conscious mind so you have to strengthen the conscious mind to override that that logical pattern. It's fascinating. Okay, so let's pivot over to guilt. And and also I'd like to just talk a little bit about, we've spoken about shame. People battle a lot with shame. You've given some examples. It's in culture, it's in families, it's people set rules kind of thing. And, and if you don't fit within that rule, like a religious environment or a particular belief system or leads to a lot of shame. So do you see the, sh- the, ga- the shame converting to guilt or is it hand in hand? Is it Talk about guilt and also talk a little bit about why are we struggling so much with shame and guilt? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that a big thing that why we struggle with shame and guilt is I think that, I mean, like I said, kind of our culture, you know, breeds this. But as well, there's, I mean, we're connected, I feel like, to billions of people on the planet now. And I just feel, and you can tell me probably more because you're the brain scientist, but our brains were like not wired to be connected to so many people. Without filters. We need some filters, yeah. (laughs) So I think that really impacts how much, I mean, not everyone is going to agree with us. Not everyone is going to have the same opinion. I think there's a lot going on with, like the world is becoming more polarized and we're really struggling to have real conversations Mm. with people. Mm, It's just so sad. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So in terms of, of guilt and whether I think it's like guilt again, it can, I think that people sometimes feel guilt about things that aren't theirs to feel guilty about. Like you can feel guilty about your mom being upset. A lot of like, that's a common one feeling guilty for other people or about other people, Mm -hmm. which can be very intertwined with codependency. If you feel guilty that you're significant other isn't happy, right? Like you're really externalizing 
and placing, you're making yourself responsible for something that you just can't be responsible Responsible for. Wow. That's a good one. Mm -hmm. So that is like, I would say a a type of guilt that's not helpful at Mm -hmm. all, or just people who feel guilty kind of just all the time. But if you don't take action on your guilt, Mm -hmm. that's not helpful to feel all the Mm -hmm. time either. Really the, the emotional purpose of the the feeling of guilt is to correct your behavior, to do something different. And when I work with people that, I mean, shame often, once they work through shame, sometimes they start to feel guilt Mm. and that's where we can start to do a lot of values work. And I love having people recognize and learn about like, what are their values? What is important to them? And then they can start taking action that's in alignment with that. That's so good. So it's really to become aware once again, and then to look at values from awareness to move to values and then from values to actions. Yeah. And the good thing is we have millions of opportunities all day, every day for the rest of our lives, right? To make all these decisions. Yes. So we're going to mess up. We're going to try different things. And I really believe in just looking at it like it's just an experiment in, okay, this is my value. How am I going to try that out this week? If this doesn't work, we try something else, but if it's your value and you take action that's consistent with it, you get to, you know, choose the kind of life that you want to live. That's excellent. Can you give an example of that? Because it's a really great, it's what, how you've described that is really easy to understand, but just to have it as an example, because I don't know if people will all make the direct association between awareness, values, and action. So how would that look? Can you give a little example? Totally. Okay. Let's say that someone came to me and they are now getting into recovery from an addiction. They had a lot of shame about not being a good partner, not being a good employee, like an employee because they would miss work and they would maybe like lie and come late because of their drinking. We would work through the shame and what all came up with that. There may be something they needed to do through like making amends or sharing with their previous employees so that they can feel better and feel Mm -hmm. like they can move through it. And then let's say that they're going into a new job and they probably have fear about the pattern, you know, repeating Mm -hmm. again. And Mm -hmm. let's say they make a mistake and they're late to work one day. So that would be like, if they're able to recognize I made a mistake, guilt Mm -hmm. is going to come back up and then they're going to look at their values. And one of their values now is integrity. Mm -hmm. And part of integrity for them looks like being on time, you know, doing good work, being Being honest about exactly. Mm -hmm. So that would then shape the, the action that they took where rather than maybe, you know, cause a lot of times too, with shame, we can get into like secrecy Mm. Or guilt can really propel us into being upfront, taking, you know, preemptive action. So maybe rather than falling into like the, the shame and the hiding of it, they would reach out to their boss and be like, Hey, I was late to work. I, you know, I really just want to apologize. And this is my plan for how I'm not going to be late to work anymore. That's so good. That's simple, easy to understand. And one can take that concept and apply it in a multitude of different situations. So thank you very much. It's excellent. Let's pivot over to loneliness. You've written a lot about that recently and and it's a big topic. I mean, it's a hot topic over COVID. People have been talking about this a lot, but I like you've got some posts where you you actually define it and you put there, you actually have made a note here. You get curious about your loneliness. So you've got, that's kind of on the, on the healing side. But the first thing is to recognize the loneliness and then get and then getting curious and then you had some tips. So 
take it away. Yeah. So, I mean, one thing, and this like changed, made a big difference in my life when I learned about the different types of loneliness, that there are actually three types. So there's intimate loneliness, which would be like a significant other, close family, close, close friends. Then there's social loneliness, which would be kind of like the next level Mm -hmm. of good friends or maybe family that aren't super close. And then there's also this like communal loneliness where it also, we need to be connected to people who share our purpose, Mm. who have similar interests as us. That could be from being in the same religious or spiritual group, or even if we like our job and we feel like a connection to people we work with, we can get that. And I think this is so important because so often people, I mean, number one, I think we don't, loneliness is still really stigmatized, I think. Yeah. And interesting, you said the three. So it's the intimate, it's the the second one is the fam, sorry? Social. Social, intimate, social, communal. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, so I think it's still unfortunately stigmatized, but, and I think it's Mm -hmm. important to know because often we may feel very, like we may feel like we're living with our partner during COVID right now. So we shouldn't be lonely because we're with them all day. Yeah. Ever. Yeah. But if we're not able to see friends, if we're not able to see family, if we aren't going to a job anymore or feeling mm. connected to that, we're going to feel lonely. Mm. So that's one of the other two. You may have the intimate loneliness, but you don't have the social and the communal loneliness stimulation. So that, that leads to that type of loneliness. Okay. So the first step would be then to identify which of the three or if it's all three before you can. And that's the getting curious bit. Is that correct? Yeah. Yes, exactly. Because I think often people just say, they just identify, I feel lonely and they don't actually know what kind of loneliness they're looking, you know, what actually Mm. would make a difference for them in feeling better. And you can't change it until you know what type it is. So that's, so step number one is to be curious about what type of loneliness. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I think too, especially with what's going on right now, I mean, the way to fulfill loneliness is going to look different. So some people, you know, video calls work really well for them and they actually leave a conversation with someone and they actually feel less lonely. I noticed myself, one thing that was weird that was happening is I felt more lonely walking around my city Mm. than not because when I walked around the city, I saw everything boarded up Mm. and it made me very like lonely for... Communal, the third one, the communal. That's so true. We had that experience, especially when it just happened. And I remember because we go for walks in the evening and it's quite a buzzy little place where we live. And in the evenings up until nine, ten o'clock and we walked around like at eight o'clock and it was like, I felt like I I was in I Am Legend. You know that movie, I Am Legend? You know, it felt also boarded up. I thought at any moment, is there something that's going to jump out of somewhere? It was so weird. And that was, it did. It felt like, I never thought of it like that. It felt like this, I would walked into communal loneliness, literally. Yeah. And I was like, although I was walking to feel part of the city and feel part of it, didn't feel part of it. Yeah. So I was like, well, that's (laughs) that's not something to do if I'm feeling lonely for community. That's not, yeah. It, it look, it'll be different for everyone in terms of what actually fills them up. Some people, phone calls work, some people, it doesn't. I think especially getting creative right now with doing things with people virtually is hard. You know, we're used to being able to go for a walk, being able to go to a restaurant, cook dinner, go somewhere. So trying to come up with things to do where we don't have to maybe talk the whole time. 
Mm, that's true. Because a lot of people are saying things like, let's get for dinner when we can. You know, and there's that question mark, when can we? So now how do we do that alternate thing? And I know a lot of people are like, they cook dinner together, they get, they get the, you know, get Zoom up or whatever, and they're cooking dinner. But it's not, you know, it's, it's and it's, we have to make that adjustment. And there is research showing that physiologically, we get a lot of the same responses in our body as we would face to face, but there's still that physical contact there's still that intimacy that you lose if you so that and one so you have to work harder at it and it's more tiring so people feel exactly so it's more tiring to do a zoom call than it is just to sit with someone and be with them because you've got all that extra dimension that you have to kind of wade through if there's one mineral you should be worried about not getting enough of it's magnesium Magnesium is the body's master mineral, powerfully influencing over 300 critical reactions, including detoxification, fat metabolism, energy, even digestion is influenced by the presence of magnesium. Magnesium also has been seen as a natural treatment for anxiety. My favorite magnesium supplement is Magnesium Breakthrough by BioOptimizers. This product has been so popular that it constantly sells out, but BioOptimizers has just restocked. Go to www.magbreakthrough.com forward slash leaf and use the coupon code DRLEAF10 to save up to 40% off select packages to get the most full spectrum and effective magnesium product ever. The link and offer details will also be in the show notes. You had a whole list of tips in that Instagram post of things that you can do because it's different now. As you said, it's it's all different, and it's so some of the things that did work aren't going to work as well. So what did what did you get? You came up with some great alternatives. Yeah. So some of the some of the things I talked about, and I think it's, it's I love that you said you know it is going to be more draining. So I think recognizing what your energy level is mm. before and afterwards is good too, because it may be like I know for myself sometimes some things take more energy, but I get enough from it that it's like worth, worth it. it. It's worth it. Yeah. Not so. I think like anything you can do socially distance in person outside that's safe yeah. is really going to be a good thing right now. I think anything you can do that maybe doesn't involve talking the whole time. Like I know Netflix has a feature now where you can like watch the same movie with someone or some of my friends. Yes, yes. Calling someone and, like, and you can do a chat while you're watching yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. My kids yeah. have been doing that. There's this great platform online where you can play board games online. Yes, yes. Yeah. That's so doing something so like that where again, you don't have to talk the whole time or even sometimes it's just easier to talk while you're doing something else. Like you're yeah. the same meal or even if you go for a walk and talk to someone on the phone while you're walking, it can be easier or something like that that's great that's really great because the movement actually helps with the the conversations you just put your earphones in put your phone in your in your back pocket of your jeans and chat away while you're walking along and it's and people can see that you've got earphones in they won't think you're too crazy <laughs> like my other real tip of this too is like i think we can get afraid of pauses in the conversation mm. over technology more than in person. Mm, that's a good one. Like there's something weird about it where I think sometimes yeah. if we can't see the person. We think like, oh, have you dropped off or something? Yeah. And if we normalize, if we're going for a walk and talking on the phone with someone, there may be a pause in the conversation and it's okay. That's and it, it, that's fantastic. And it's actually maybe a front to actually say these things. Once again, it's an awareness and a learning. It's different. So if I pause, just, you know, stay on the phone still, just hang in the phone there, just, just 
let's just talk and walk. I mean, just listen and walk. Yeah, that's actually really good. I never thought about that, the pauses and two. Sometimes because because I'm doing all of my like sessions pretty much mostly they're via video, but even yeah. but sometimes I have some clients who don't want to do video. And yeah, it's funny because it's it's harder because you're like, oh, are you still there? <laughs> so I've had to yeah. practice being like, there's going to be pauses just like there will be pauses in a therapy room. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So do you find you have to prep your patients for that and yourself? Do you say it's okay to pause? I'm fine if you want to just stop talking for a while. Is it a conversation that you have in advance? Typically when we first were kind of transitioning into all of this, I've kind of given them like, make yourself, you know, try to do things that'll make yourself comfortable during this, have tissues ready. If you want to walk while we're chatting, like do that, just whatever you need to do to make it feel a little bit more comfortable. And would you recommend to do that as well? If it's just you chatting to a friend or chatting a family member, chatting to a family member, just also say like, if there's a pool, just so just prep, prep each other. That Yeah. Just- I think too, we can, if we, especially for people that have social anxiety, I think that like a lot of people that have social anxiety really struggle to talk on the phone all the time. Yeah. So I think, and I think it's those pauses that we can be afraid of. So I think I'm just a huge fan in general of like, if there's going to be anything awkward or potential snafus, let's just like put them out there in front and, you know, work and through them. It's the awareness once again, because then you don't feel thrown. You don't think, oh, what's going on? I've got to fill the pause with all kinds of fillers, you know? I know sometimes, because I can talk a lot and my, I mean, my kids are around, I love talking about all these different things. And my one daughter, youngest daughter said to me the one time we were in the sauna together and I'm chattering away. And she said, mom, you don't have to fill every pause with with words you know and I thought okay I'll be quiet and you know it was great you got to the point where you could just chat sometimes and just sit there together and you know so that was funny so I got an I got an awareness call there (laughs) it was really great that's lovely let's pivot over to worrying and planning okay so what is the difference between worrying and planning and how can we which is quite a nice one to talk about yeah so planning is really when you are you you're thinking of a problem that you have or a potential problem and you're making a concrete set of steps that you're going to take if this happens and typically planning also isn't more than one or two steps forward but it may be a few different you might have plan a plan b you might have backup plans mm-hmm where worrying is a lot of times it ends up spinning. It may start the same. Like if you have a worry that you are going to, I don't know, uh, you wake up in the middle of the night and you're afraid of sleeping through your alarm clock or whatever in the morning, the worry would be, oh my God, if this happens, then this will happen and this will happen and I'm going to get fired and then I'm not going to have a job and it's, oh my God, it's COVID. And then I, and then and I'm you not going to have you got a whole Broadway show in your head before you've even begun. <laughs> exactly. So it's not multiple backup plans, but it's many, many steps forward. Mm-hmm. And they're all making you feel bad. <laughs> exactly. And it's so many steps ahead that it's not even, I mean, it's not helpful at all because you're just in this future that is far out. Where a plan would look like, right, if you have the same thought or worry of, I'm going to sleep through my alarm, it would look like, okay, well, what can I do? Is there anything that I can do right now to create a, you know, is there another alarm I can set? Can I have my significant other wake me up? Can I text a friend and tell them to make sure I'm up? All of the above. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. And you can actually do something about it and put it into practice where worrying doesn't ever take it typically out of your head. 
It's ah, uh, it's just it's just an endless cycle, ruminating, and you can get constructive and destructive worry, but that's that you've got to determine. You've got to drive that. You've got to turn the destructive worry into constructive worry, which is then becomes planning. So yeah, no, that's really okay. Fantastic. Okay, so let's now pivot over to processing emotions and then overthinking. So the difference between those. So processing, we working through and overthinking. Yeah. So this is one of my favorite topics because I think most people don't actually know how to process their emotions. It's one of the most I agree. common things. And, you know, therapists often talk about it. And really, I mean, people often too, when I talk to them about the importance of noticing how they feel and identifying how different emotions feel in their body, there is a concern sometimes of, well, I'm just going to feel sorry for myself, or I'm just going to you know, ruminate, or I'm not going to do anything if I let myself Mm. feel how I feel. And if you're actually feeling the emotion in your body, it is constructive and it's really important. It's evidence. It's evidence because that memory is in three places and the body is one of the first to give you. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So the difference would be, right, like in how to process an emotion, you actually allow yourself to notice how your body is feeling. I like tell people to get as specific as possible as they can. Very good. Like, I, mm-hmm. this, I agree. My, one of my favorite questions is if you were writing a book about this, like writing, a, describing a character was feeling this, how would you describe it? What would it? you say? Very good. Yeah. yeah. Like, is there an analogy of like, I don't know, rather than just like my throat's tight. It's like, is someone squeezing your throat? Is it throbbing? Like, what is the specific? Let's get as specific as possible. Very good. I agree. So yeah, so you allow yourself to actually process the feeling and then you're getting, it's all from a place of curiosity and noticing Mm -hmm. versus when you're stuck in an emotion or you're overthinking it or you're judging your emotion. It's all about why is this happening? What's wrong with me? When Mm -hmm. is this going to go away? Why do I always feel this way? You know, always happens to me. That kind of thing, those kind of statements. Yeah, it's like future, past, future, past, a lot yeah. too, versus mm. what's happening right now. Mm-hmm. And emotions, if you actually sit with them, they aren't super, super long a lot of the times. It mm-hmm. feels very long, but they it's don't. Not very long. Yeah, they, they come in waves. Yeah, 30 to 90 seconds is the sort of uh, what, but the waves are actually also every 10 seconds, you're actually, if you become aware of it from the neuroscience, you can actually calculate and be aware every more or less every 10 seconds, we can become aware of a batch of memories, the, the body, the information and the emotions. So that's so true. It's little waves. Yeah. So yeah, I think people just, yeah, learning to, I love that. that okay. It actually really does make a difference in working through the emotion and not feeling it that much. The problem is most people start to feel that discomfort in their body. They start to judge it. They're upset about it. Then they have meta emotions, which is an emotion about an emotion Mm -hmm. about it. Mm -hmm. And then they're not even actually dealing with maybe the loneliness or the, you know, the sadness they're dealing with their judgment and frustration. And that leads, ah, that's so well explained, the meta emotions. And then that leads to the, why is this always happening to me? So if you find yourself going from, this is the emotion, and then you, I don't know why I feel this emotion. And then why is this always happening to me? When you go down that rabbit hole, then you're in what you've, you've moved over to overthinking. Whereas processing is, okay, this is hard, but I'll take it, but I'm going to work through. So there's a progression through it. Yeah. And I tell people too, sometimes it can be really hard to just like, it doesn't mean you have to sit and like not move. Like you can walk, 
Yeah, you can be doing dinner. You can be at, on the treadmill at Orange Theory, sweating off <laughs> and try thinking. The physical component can be helpful because it almost creates like a container. Yeah, of energy, for that energy. Yeah, and like you're in touch with the present moment. If you're walking, you know that your feet are hitting the ground and it makes it a little easier sometimes to not spin into the meta emotion and thinking about your emotion. I totally agree with that. It's so great because you balance your the energy because that these toxic thoughts bring up so much toxic energy and they throw the brain's energy and your body and your non-conscious mind is trying to sort that out. And energy is never lost. It's always transferred. So if you walk or do something, it's a great way. I find it excellent. For me, it really helps when I'm, when I'm finding myself going into a worry spiral. I find it incredibly helpful. Often it's when I'm on the treadmill, sweating my, sweating like crazy that's when I find I can take that worry and kind of work it through and transfer it and it's 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 such a great then I've got suddenly get clarity afterwards so I'm very glad you mentioned it kind of anchors you that physical anchors you and you become very aware and you can process from there into the different stages which is fantastic so good okay well this is such I love talking to you it's such fun and so in such interesting stuff and such great stuff where can people find out more about you and your work yes So you can follow me on Instagram, which is my handle is therapy for women. My private practice is therapy for women center. That's the Instagram handle. And our website is also therapy for women center.com. And you practice from Philadelphia, but you do do tele, you do have HIPAA compliant online. And we also do workshops like every month too. Well, that's wonderful. And across the, uh, just in Philadelphia, are you able to work with people across the board? Um, it depends. The, on the health insurance, yes. okay. It depends, but yeah, in terms of all the like workshops we do and events, you can be anywhere in the world for those. Okay, perfect. Fantastic. That's wonderful. I'm going to put all the links in the show notes and thank you so much. It was wonderful conversation. We learned so much. So thank you so much. Thank you. I hope you found today's podcast interesting and helpful. If you want more tips and help with managing anxiety, depression, and mental health, be sure to visit my website at drleaf.com and to sign up for my weekly newsletter where I also include a schedule of my speaking events and so much more. And follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Just look for Dr. Caroline Leaf. Also, I love seeing all your posts on social media about this podcast. I love seeing what resonates with you and what you've learned. So be sure to continue posting and tagging me and letting me know what you think and how these tips worked out for you. And don't forget, leave a review and keep spreading the word about this podcast. Thank you for joining me today. I really hope you learned something new and helpful. Till then... I'm Dr. Caroline Leaf. This podcast represents the opinions of myself and my guests. The content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for educational and informational purposes only. Please consult your healthcare professional for any individual medical questions you may have. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions or corrections of errors.